Hello there, this is How to Murder Time, a podcast about books and things. Hello everybody. Hello. Watcher. Back with more books. Another book. It's the Hugo thing. Oh, I, I, I did really badly on the Guess the Hugo winning the awards this year's. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm qualified to judge anything about these books. Hang on, hang on. <clears throat> Are you saying that if you don't agree with the winning vote, I, you shouldn't I, be allowed to vote? I don't because know. Because with Brexit and Trump, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a valid argument anymore. I, um, yeah, I like to think I've got my finger on the pulse, and it turns out I've actually got my finger somewhere entirely different, and that weird thumping noise is, is just nearby trains or something. My metaphors Look, go as well. You, you're the person who didn't vote for Trump. That I doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed vote to vote. It means everybody <laughs> should vote for you, vote the same way as you. Yeah. You didn't vote for a, a Hugo winning novel. It doesn't matter. It's yeah, keep voting. Uh, yeah. It's all opinions. So anyway, mm. uh, yeah. So we we're, we're going back in time this time. We're going to we're we're talking about Ringworld by Larry Niven, which was the winner of the 1971 uh, Hugo Best Novel. Who picked this one? I think I did. It was you. Yes. Hooray. Why did you pick this one? I remember liking it. Okay. And then I read it for a podcast, and that never helps. That's already sounding slightly qualified, yeah. I like most of it. Mm, Uh, mm. But the the thing is, I remember reading this and the prequel and the sequel, Mm. and they all sort of link together to make a a bigger story. And this rather, this got about three quarters of the way through the book, and then it just, quickly, how can we hurry along (laughs) the end? Then think... (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a, 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 I'd say, a relatively hard science fiction space opera type thing. Uh, yeah, it's, the, it's an idea, isn't it? It's a, it's a big idea. 2850, 20, apparently. Uh, and, yeah, it's about spaceships and, and, and the, the, one of the definitive big dumb objects, uh, the uh, one of the mega structures that we see so much in uh, science fiction tropes, the ring world. I'm going to read the back mm. of the book because I do that. I like that. This is the best bit of the show. (laughs) Everybody get ready. This is the best bit. There we go. The artifact is a circular ribbon of matter 600 million miles long and 90 million miles in radius. Pearson's puppeteers, the aliens who discovered it, are understandably wary of encountering the builders of such an immense structure and have assembled a team of two humans, a mad puppeteer and a kazin, a a huge cat-like alien, to explore it. But a crash landing on the vast edifice forces the crew on a desperate and dangerous trek across the ring world, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Doesn't that leave you about halfway through the book? <laughs> yeah, it does describe about two thirds of it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, okay. So how did, how did you get on with this then, John? In general, <sighs> it, it, it's not the world's greatest book. I would I would say that. Um, and I always thought it, it was one of the classics, but sort of having yeah, having having had a having a recent go at it, you do start to see it in a bit more of a critical light. I it, suppose it's a book that's remembered for its ideas. Mm. And may have dated slightly from when it was written back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, yeah. I think it doesn't help that we're all the wrong side of 18 and uh, and we're reading this. Because when I first read it, I was a lot younger and more impressionable. And the great ideas just sold me on the whole thing. And now I read it and I think, well, I know the big ideas because I've seen them in lots of other things. And it doesn't really... It's not as sort of sort a lot as, of yeah. inspirations, I suppose, and that then it sort it, of dilute, dilutes the. the it's sort a brilliant of idea. The, the basic idea of okay, how are we going to, when population gets too big, what can we do? Let's mm. make a bigger world, <laughs> but, but that, without that's, gravity problems, yeah. without <laughs> completely ruining the point of everything. Mm. That, that's where the novel falls down. It's mm. got the ideas and doesn't run with them. 
Yeah. If it had gone into a lot more detail about why it was built, how it was built, what it was there for, instead of just glossing over all these things as they came up, then I think it would be a lot more satisfying. Mm, so it's sort of a bit tantalising and unsatisfying in many ways. It's definitely a book about big ideas. Um, but yeah, do, do they get enough looking at? I, th- I think they do, there's a reasonable job of examining a lot of the concepts. But I think there's a lot gets packed in in the space. Which is packed, you know. There's a sense of rattling from idea to idea to idea, and we don't really get a satisfying, good, long look at much of it in huge detail. I, I suppose mean, one of the things I did really like early on is you've got two aliens that turn up, mm. who they give you enough information to explain why these are different to people. They're not just humans with a pasty stuck to their head. They are definitely human. They are definitely different on a fundamental level. And their outlook that, you know, that the whole reason they, they exist, travel, explore and do everything is very different to humanity. There's been quite a bit of thought gone into them. Yeah. A lot of effort gone into those different species. Well, that's true. They're both caricatures. (laughs) Yeah, you've um, got the cowards. Oh, you, you've basically got uh, the uh, the coward and the um, uh, line about the heart. So it, it basically <laughs> is Wizard of Oz. It's the Wizard of Oz. It is and it isn't because sort of. what what you get with the puppeteers is that they are viewed by humanity and the Kazin as cowards, mm. and they're viewed as them by themselves as cowards because they've all misinterpreted the way they respond to danger. Mm, yeah. They're not really cowardly, really manipulative gits. <laughs> um, but everyone, well, including sort of like them, thinks they're cowardly. Yeah, they are absolutely, and they really do manipulate <clears throat> universes and. Oh God! Yeah, that's false. That gets to <clears> the <throat> really, really stupid idea. <laughs> we'll the stupidest of all stupid ideas. Anyway, anyway, yeah. Okay, let's rattle through the the plot then. So, <clears throat> it starts on Earth at the two hundredth birthday party of Louis Wu, who is our, our protagonist, our, our point of view hero, human type. He's two hundred years old, but in the prime of his life, thanks to rejuvenative technologies and so on. And he's spice. It's always spice. It's <laughs> called booster spice. Yes. Um, and he's basically a sort of a bit of an eccentric because he likes to have uh, what he calls sabbaticals, where he basically just every so often spends like a decade off in a one-man spaceship out exploring the the, the deepnesses of space without any company and so on. Uh, so he's at his party and he gets cut, well, he's, he's, he gets bored and decides to go off uh, teleporting around the world to spend like the entire <laughs> an extra yeah. the whole twenty-four hours of partying, as it were. Which is a fantastic idea, right there. The idea that Earth is basically, I mean, this is an idea that gets sort of. I don't know. It's, it, already we go bang. Here's an idea that's. It's a bit like um, Bester's um, Stars My Destination, where everyone can jaunt, mm-hmm. everyone can teleport. So on Earth, you've got teleport booths everywhere. They're casual. They they cost nothing. Anyone can use them, and it effectively means distance suddenly has no meaning on the planet Earth. He can go anywhere, anytime, and he he does. He go. He spends up basically spends twenty four hours going to parties all around the world, following the sunrise. And apparently, stuff. apparently, in the first edition, he got it very, very wrong. <laughs> he was travelling eastward, so <laughs> he, he made his he made the the birthday party very one, very yeah. small. Um, um, unless so you go more then, than twelve hours ahead, then yeah, you well, just get very confused. He then rewrote it in second edition and all later editions to travel westward right, to keep ahead of the sun. Sense, yeah, and following and the sun so around. apparently the first editions are worth a lot of money because 
it's such a fundamental <laughs> failing very early on in the story. Oh, but it's, 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 I mean, you get some small discussion there about how it's made all the places the same and how there's no, there's not really much in the way of indigenous culture anywhere on mm. the earth anymore because, you know, anyone has instantaneous travel to anywhere else on the earth at any time. The franchises have taken over. I mean, we mm. see that now. But mm. this well, is sort of, of early 19, globalization. Yeah, yeah, this is early sixties or no, early late seventies. Early seventies. Yeah. So he's actually foretelling what something that in reality came a bit later. I yeah, think. I don't know what I suppose passenger air travel was already doing that back then. But the idea of instantaneous travel to everywhere from anywhere else. And, See, it, oh, and Louis, I, he gets he gets a bit bored and fed up and sort of you know he's mm. putting on a brave fa- yeah a good face for all his party guests and so on. But he's already starting to feel a bit bored by all and thinking about going off on another sabbatical right there like and then. The teleport booths are a great idea, but in my idea, mm. the teleport booths are a good way to stop the franchises taking over the pubs. Because <laughs> right. in my world, on, you can only teleport to a pub with the same name. <laughs> so you can't have the Flapper and Firkin, the Ford so, and Firkin, because they can't. you can't ever teleport from so those. So all pubs called the so, White Heart are the same building? In, no, they have a little <laughs> telephone box that you can get into and then come out in any right. other White Heart so, or Lion so, or Bell. I'll write that down. Excellent. It's a, I, th- I thought that was a much better idea. And there are two carry. White Hearts near me that are really close to each other, like in yeah. walking distance. Oh, oh, <laughs> you don't well, need it this. also mean mm. you could go to a holiday in Australia because you just go into the Bell down the corner of the road. Uh, and then dial up sure the in bell in right. Durban or whatever. You know. So anyway, he's doing this, and he, oh, well. on one of his last jumps, he gets kidnapped. Basically, the, the the teleport takes him somewhere he wasn't expecting to, into a hotel room where he's confronted with a Pearson's puppeteer, which is an alien species. There, I got they're described, I think, as being two-headed, two sort of snake-like heads on 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 prehensile uh, stalks, with a large mm-hmm. round body and three three legs, sort of tripedal base. Um, and these these creatures are incredibly rare. I mean, they're, they're they're known. People know about them and do trade with them and stuff. But meeting one in the flesh is generally considered in, entirely un, unexpected because they're so terrified of meeting anyone else or being in the room with any strangers or anything like that. I mean, right from the word go, we get this sort of well painted picture of a, of a species of who are pathologically terrified or, or you know cowardly and in all their mm-hmm. dealings, and yet somehow managed to become an advanced spacefaring civilization and interact on a huge diplomatic level with other species and this one puppeteer who's called Nessus who, who you know, basically has a, an offer for Louis he was try, he's trying to recruit him to to join a crew to explore a strange strange thing that the puppeteers have come across um, and yeah right I, I, I found the character of Nessus relatively well painted throughout but um, yeah it's sort of quite quite a it's hard to describe sort of um, quite an interesting sort of portrayal of of a sort of I don't know, a sort of human psychology sort of abstracted out as an alien species it's the sort of mm-hmm. of hats thing you get in Star Trek and such <laughs> He does spend a lot of time being uh, a delayed release of information though he is, he's quite expositional, yeah. But then he's, he's, he's sort of the initiator. He's the one who's, who's, who's trying to put the, the, whole, the whole mission together and everything. So. He's also a sneaky liar that won't tell you anything until you've discovered it for yourself. Because he's not a nice person. Despite the fact that he's a coward, mm. he's in no way stupid or, or generous. Or, you know, he's, he's not all yes. the things you associate with a coward. He's a manipulative, um, twisted, 
person. So start initially feeling sort of sorry for, for mm-hmm. him and pitying him a bit, but then as the book goes on and as, as the nature of the, the name Puppeteers becomes more and more apparent, yeah. You Why did to... nobody ask that question, by the way? <laughs> Why are these people called Puppeteers? Well, I think the, uh, the initial the initial re- name was given to them because of the, the way they sort of, their two heads look like marionettes on, on, on strings, that sort of thing. They move their heads around like puppets on strings. But but yes, it, it, come, it, it sort of quite rapidly comes to it's, mean something else. It's Chekhov's naming, isn't it? They it were called Puppeteers because they looked like they had their heads on strings. But really... Mm. And if it was Star Trek, you'd realise that, oh, actually, no, Q uh, the made them puppeteers the because, yeah. Yeah, because they turned out to manipulate everybody. So basically, he, he, he signs Louis on to because Louis's very good with aliens, apparently, and also just a generally quite useful and competent space explorer type. And says that we, they're gonna, they've got to go and find two more crew members before they can go off on this this big mission. Uh, so then they go, he goes off to, they teleport off to a restaurant in New York where there's some cuisine, and these are basically described as like eight foot long cat, house cats. I didn't quite get the description. They're sort of very large felines, but sort of extremely, mm. extremely bulky, more like I bears am, than I tigers. I immediately thought Kilrathi. Yes, yes. I, well, I didn't get the sort of bipedal thing. Do they walk on two legs? I can't remember. <laughs> can they have the well, quadrupeds? The, but anyway, yeah. The Kazin do mm. walk on two legs. I don't know about the... Oh, I see. Um, but yes, the... the um, and this is again suddenly we're sort of presented with a, a huge a sort of abstracted human psychology as an alien race. These you, the Kazin are your your archetypal, really angry warrior race type type people. These sort of Cleons, I guess. That sort of mm. we will we we are really sort of massively bound up in saving face, and and we will just go off the handle and, and, and kill you if you look at us strangely. And we're quite fighty. Um, and at which point the the puppeteer immediately insults him in his own language in front of his peers, you know, sort of goading him into a massive kind of almost instantaneous sort of retaliatory strike. But the the, uh, the the Kazin doesn't do this. So we're introduced to Speaker to Animals, who turns out to be some kind of ambassador. And he's got that name because he's he's so he's considered a sort of defective because he's so restrained he doesn't instantly kill people who ins- insult him kind of thing. It's like a dip- an alien diplomat warrior. I love that name. I just yeah. thought that was a brilliant name for a, a creature. You know, how do you translate the name of this one into, into yeah. English? Yeah. I thought it was a brilliant name for what his job was, which was diplomat. <laughs> yeah, this is sort of trying to save some face by just insulting the people you're trying to dip, dip, be diplomatic to. It also fits that it's it's a subtle or not so subtle insult to whoever he talks to, because exactly. they're only animals. Yeah, so he gets he gets recruited onto the uh, the the team as well with the prize of uh, a special hyperdrive. So the humans have got hyperdrive technology, but it takes like uh, several months to get from one place to another. Whereas the puppeteers are offering the plans and and prototype ship of one that can do the same kind of journey in hours, which would you know. Which, uh, <clears throat> oh yeah, of course, man, mankind and the Kazin have, have fought about five or six interstellar wars in the past and are currently in a kind of kind of truce state. So the puppeteers are already sort of offering both sides through Louis and the Kazin, this, this hyperdrive thing. Um, and then they go off and try and look for the fourth member of the crew because Nessus has obviously got this, this uh, very specific list of people he's looking for with particular skills and so on. And having trouble finding the last person... 
um, and then does find them at Louis's party. <laughs> they go back to Louis's party, and it turns out the the, the last member of the crew, T. Brown, is uh, just happened to be at the party anyway. What are the odds? And, mm. and also the the woman that Louis had hit it off with uh, and was was sleeping with after the after the party. So she gets recruited on as well, and she's got no obvious character, obviously useful abilities or, or space experience or any kind of anything like that at all. She's but Nessus is adamant that she's. Um, She's the one for the crew. I, I'm trying to work. I can't remember. Is is the whole business of the birthright lottery is real yes, at that point already? Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, so basically, Teela. The reason they're bringing Teela along is because she's very lucky. At some point <laughs> in the, I know this, this is great. I, I, I'm explaining it, and I'm not sure I believe it myself. But so. What happens is that at some point in the past, human overpopulation has caused a massive problem and a need for birth control and licensed breeding, basically. You know, you need to, you need to get permission to have children because there's just far too many people on the planet, which seems reasonable enough. And various systems have tried in the past, but usually, usually sort of... Um, usually sort of caused all sorts of civil unrest because they were deemed to be corruptible or, or unfair or whatever. So in the end, what they come up with is, is literally a lottery. I think there's a certain proportion of the population are allowed to have children anyway because they're no, likely to have... I think anyone's allowed one or two. You can buy the rights to a child for a million because... Making money is is, is, is a, 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 a successful trait. Yeah. Also, and there's still the numbers of citizenhood. Does, yeah, um, <laughs> leaders and scientists. But the and numbers so don't add up. There's yeah, always still not enough people to keep the population going. So the remaining ch- child licenses are, are literally done with a, with what they call the birthright lotteries. Literally lottery tickets. <laughs> Uh, and so this has been going on for quite a few generations. By the time the time of our story, apparently five or six generations, possibly more. Mm-hmm. And Nessus has done the research, and it turns out that Teela is uh-huh. like the sixth sixth generation of a lottery winning. Nessus has winning. done the research, is what he says at this stage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So basically, the, the Nessus is of the belief that Teela's ideal for the mission because she is basically the, the the winner of six rounds of of birth lotteries. Basically, six <sighs> six generations of winners of this lottery. So Nessus believes that Teela is is genetically lucky. <laughs> Can I just so, say at this point that know, six this does not idea. seem to be enough numbers to have anything more than coincidence well i mean the whole concept is is, is mildly preposterous and and louis himself in in character in, in, in the story is 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 just doesn't believe it and is trying to point out how crazy it all sounds but nessus is absolutely convinced of, of the belief of this because you know and so but then louis manages to talk nessus out of bringing teela because louis just doesn't think she's gonna be she'll survive she's just not up to it so nessus goes away you know and, and tells nessus to go and look for his second choice and so he goes away and consults with his with his colleagues and he says oh hang on one of my one of my one of my colleagues has found found another candidate and looks across the party to where there's another puppeteer who's just met teela and is talking to her so basically she you know the 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 other agent that was looking for someone else has found her as well which sort of further reinforces this sort of mild Mm. lunacy going on that the genetic luck thing is magic is powerful yeah Mm. exactly it is regarded as a kind of scientific magic all the way through it, it's it's, it's magic with a smattering of scientific <laughs> nonsense to excuse it. Oh, it's clearly, but clearly rubbish. Because I mean, how how does how do you genetically code for luck? It's it just genes don't work like that. But it, well, it is a fascinating that. idea, though. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, yeah. It, and again, one that doesn't get taken anywhere. Well, it sort of gets played with most of the way through the rest of the book because bad things happen to the expedition. <laughs> Spoiler. 
<laughs> and and that's taken by Louis as evidence that the whole system isn't working because you know why would bad things be happening to an expedition that she's on if mm-hmm. if if her thing worked? But then further beyond that, it gets sort of inverted again as as it goes through. We'll come to that. But so we've assembled this crew. They've all they've all been induced to to go along on this in this mission partly out of curiosity, but partly also because of the promise of a uh, of a super fast light speed drive. To save the world, because apparently the, world. the world's going to end in well, about 10,000 yeah, years or whatever. Sort of, yeah, so the whole thing, is, it, it, this is where it falls down a bit. The whole thing is driven by this narrative urgency based on this stellar core explosion. Apparently the centre of the galaxy has exploded and like, all the stars are too close together and, and black holes and whatever, science. Bang, um, yes. Yeah, has made a massive explosion with a shockwave blast front of radiation that is is, is started in the centre of the galaxy and will take in about 10,000 years time will reach known space and, and sterilize the earth and and a lot of other alien planets as well so and the puppeteers are terrified about this because you know characteristically they they are very very safe very risk averse so they're already migrating and trying to get the hell out of Dodge to the the, the lesser clouds or whatever. Lesser me- to... megalanic clouds? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad Some, you had a go. I was, I, I was I, going to say that, and then I thought, I can't ma- remember how to pronounce it. Ma- no, well, it's Magellan, isn't it? It's a Magellan. Magellanic. Magellanic. Yes, Magellanic. There you go. That sounds more like it. Mm. <clears throat> so so they, 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 they set off on their mission, and first they go to make a stop with the puppeteer worlds. And what the puppeteers have managed to do is they're so worried about this, this disaster that's coming in 10,000 years that they've already packed their entire civilization onto five planets managed to harness them together in kind of kind of array <laughs> and use them as a spaceship to go the hell out of the galaxy at, at yeah. ridiculous speeds so they had um, a rendezvous wh- with that <laughs> and when asked why they did that they said well, have you any idea how dangerous it is to be on a, a spaceship yeah. it's much safer on a planet <laughs> they take the whole planets out yeah you can't so argue with that it's it's, <laughs> it's interesting so the our crew go to rendezvous with this world to pick up the the, the spaceship and uh, get more mission briefings and so on and during during their visit to this this world, which is quite interesting in itself, they don't see any other puppeteers at all, and it transpires that none of them will come out and beat aliens at all. And it turns out that Nessus, by his own admission and his peers as well, is actually considered to be in, in suicidally and insanely brave by comparison to the rest of his species. So it's all relative. Yeah, and in fact, every puppeteer that anyone's ever met is also is considered insane because, because a real otherwise you wouldn't, wouldn't even them. leave the planet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, pu- the population needs a certain percentage of oh. insane puppeteers to, be able to interact with the rest of the galaxy. And at about this stage, we work out that Nestus is the one who started the um, lottery thing. Mm. Yeah. About 200 years ago or whatever. Yeah, well, he's, he's sort of in charge of the project that's attempting to sort of uh, skew human, human uh, mm. probabilities and, and luck and so on. So then they pick up the spaceship, which is an interesting thing as well. They got this. The, 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 these, the puppeteers design their spaceships with their, you know, racial pho- phobias and things in mind. And this thing is utterly impervious to everything. It turns out. <laughs> so I mean, just the spaceship itself, the general general products system hull number three or something, uh, and it has, you know, has all the gear on board. And they travel off to the ring world. So yeah, finally we get the we get the uh, the big stupid object, and the ring world is exactly that. It is a, a a large ring around the star, which is one AU in, in radius, uh, mm-hmm. with about 300 million Earths worth of surface area, all facing yeah. on the inside. It's a Day million night. miles from one edge to the other and about 960 million 
kilometres around, something like that. It's, yeah, it's yeah. insane size. enormous. Yeah. One thing I've never got, yeah. this and the Dyson Sphere. Yes. De- where does all the extra material come from? Because it really doesn't cover them mathematically. I'm reasonably sure of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, it's, it's entirely bonkers. In this, they sort of explain it away as they travelled and got... Previously, in this book, mm. somebody's moving five planets into stellar <laughs> distances. So getting some more planets and mm. turning them into the material is sort of way hand-waved away because of that. Mm. Wouldn't it have just been easier to add more planets to the system? Or go to other star systems, yeah. I mean, they, ah, no, the big, there was an the big... idea, there was a thing, there was a thought behind that as well, mm. which is that the material that they made the ring out of is so strong that it stops the blast from the 10,000 years it's, away. Yeah, it will going through be radiation proof. So I never guessed that was a coincidence place. just because of the luck or whether or not it was part of the initial <laughs> plan. Well, can, I think the can reason... a luck gene work? <laughs> millions of years previously yes. on if yes, so it can work it can <laughs> do that if it works at all it's essentially reality warping yes it's, i mean it's it's a stupid idea <laughs> just just for a moment taking a step away from the fact that it's a fundamentally ludicrous idea i do like what they did with it as time went on the way that it was viewed mm. made, changed over time quite yeah. like, neatly it's a beautifully stupid idea. <laughs> yes. It's it's the kind of thing that would work brilliantly in a Doctor Who story. If you're fitting the whole thing into 45 minutes, it doesn't need to hang together for very long. And it's a really clever way of explaining the sort of 300 away pages things. of careful scrutiny later, it starts to look a bit wobbly. Eh? Yeah. So they get to the ring world. I mean, the reason that apparently they've been sent to examine and explore the ring world is, is because the puppeteers think that someone vaguely humanish built it. And they reckon that probably humans will... Have, have gotten to the clouds before they do and probably built something similar when they get there, so they need to know lots about it. That seemed a bit tenuous to me. That's but... a bit of a leap. <laughs> I mean, even given sort of crazy alien psychology, I'm, I'm still, yeah. It's, it, and I also, mean, what, what's the betting that uh, anything by the time they get there will become something completely different because why would it be the same? Well, also, you got to remember the puppeteers. I mean, I think the reason the puppeteers don't just use the super fast drive themselves is because they think it's quite dangerous. It has like an <laughs> unacceptably high risk rate of like 0.01% of going wrong or something like that, whereas humans just don't care. So they're, they're quite happy to give it to other people. Um, yes, yeah, so they get to the ring world. Now, the ring, so the ring world itself is faced, they've got the inner surface is spinning, the whole thing's spinning at some ridiculous speed, like 700 meters a second or something. Mm-hmm. And the inner surface has got uh, large retaining walls to keep the atmosphere in fugal force keeps everything in and gives it one earth's gravity on the inside uh it's got a ring of what they what they discover to be squares of some dark material alternate squares and not squares in a ring inside ring well which sort of rotate around and the whole day and night cycle as well which seems a lot of effort to go to when you could just you know close the curtains or so or something well yes but you need the plants and the yeah. animals to it, have day and night as well mm. it's, so, so it sort of makes sense so they've, yeah, they've, they've created the day and night cycle so they're exploring the exterior the, the outside of it they have a look good old look and it's the underneath is all dents and troughs where the seas and mountains are on the exterior side then they try and fly inside the ring do they no they did they actually decide that's a bad idea in the first place don't they they, yeah, they, they fly inside it. the ring but they fly aiming at the dark panels rather than aiming at the ring on the other side 
but even so, the automatic defences recognise this as a potential asteroid going to hit yeah. something important, Those automatic so they shoot it. seem to be more problem than they were worth. Ah, but remember, <coughs> luck made them work because... <laughs> yes. Yeah, everything has to be looked at through the lens of this Tila Brown's luck thing, yeah. So this is anyway, why they had managed... a headache for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> they managed to... They, they hit one of these... I think they, they missed the squares, but they, don't, they didn't realise that the squares are connected by a kind of like super invisible string. And Very they, strong string, they, yes. They clipped the string, I believe which ends caused... The I think they hit the string and snap one and then end up... Uh, Sort of swerving down to make a crash landing on the surface of the uh, the ring itself, and thanks to the super magic science special spaceship hull they're in, they the whole thing goes into stasis when any kind of trouble happens for a few seconds, and so they manage to just slam straight into the ring surface floor and cool, yeah, cool, physics massive gouge. Like a word. <laughs> but then they suddenly wake up and it's all fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because, the, the exterior of the spaceship's all been stripped because everything on the outside got shot, yeah. and therefore they they were only kept alive by the stasis which meant mm. that you know they could crash at whatever speed and gravity would have no effect on the the crash and the stop yeah um but it also meant they couldn't then take off afterwards because yes. the engine got blown the engines off the are all gone. they got the hyperdrive and the 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 life support and the stasis thing and all the rest that was of all quite cleverly off. written and explained as to why they were stuck yes, on the planet the on the ring yeah. world yeah, and how they got the away at the end. I did try looking for the docking areas, and there were docking areas along the exterior of the ring, but uh, they all seemed to be powered down and turned off. And you know, you know, already we're starting to get a sense that something's gone quite badly wrong with the ring world itself. And they, as they land, they find more and more clues, like the other climate's gone a bit weird, and they can't find any signs of advanced technology or radio or anything like that. So they land and they're stuck. Uh, there's no, they've got no way to communicate, no way to get off the thing. So they need to try. They come up with a plan. Basically, we'll we'll probably find civilization near the edge, near the near the rim of the the wheel, as it were. Mm-hmm. And um, so they have to try and strike off. But the trouble is, they've landed basically slap bang in the middle of the uh, the internal strip. And it's uh, I don't know how long do they initially think it was going to take them to get to the edge? Like a couple of months. They got a whole bunch of flying hover bikes they can use, which go quite fast. Magic flying you, hover bikes. <laughs> Anti gravity flying hover bikes. But also, yes, it's. The, I still think they're going to take. It's going to take them several months to reach the edge of the uh, the, the, the yeah. sort of inner surface. Well, it's a million miles from one edge to the other, mm. so it's half a million miles to travel from the middle to an edge. Yeah, and these these bikes and, are pretty fast, yeah. but they reckon it'll still take them months to get to the edge, where possibly there'll be a, I don't know a space dock or some kind of repair equipment or or another spaceship they can use. So off they go, and we get this sort of great big long travel travel section of the uh, the, the novel where they're basically examining, you know, seeing all kinds of things on the ring world itself. And I was I don't know I was sort of ex- hoping for that section to be a lot more I don't know longer. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. I wanted it to show more. I wanted it to yes. say more, to flesh out some of those ideas and not just turn up, meet some people, run away. Yeah, they, they, they meet. They come across cities eventually after tracking across some deserts and, and some valleys and so on. And the, c- the cities are occupied by people who've basically sort of descended to savagery. They're kind of mm-hmm. pagan worshipping around the, the village and so on and basic rudimentary sort of feudal agriculture. Clearly, you know, clearly there's something gone wrong. These people are not, you know, the ring world engineers that they thought. And they try and make contact and uh, cause all sorts of fracas with, like, heresy and so on and have to run away. Um, 
sort of basically. Who was an idiot during that conversation? (laughs) Utter, utter, incompetent idiot. I think we've all read enough sci-fi to to cobble together a a reasonable go. It was a, if somebody asked you if you were a god, you say yes, man. (laughs) Oh, but but he couldn't have, no. Okay, he could have watched... Ghostbusters, but Larry <laughs> Niven writing the story uh, hadn't been able to watch Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters before he wrote it because it hadn't yeah, yet yeah. been invented. Um, <laughs> but I'm, uh, some of the basic fundamental building block ideas of this story mm. make some of the story a bit weaker. Like there's no in- communication, therefore every time you go somewhere, it's like the first time. Yes, you know that, and and very and well, the, like that and, the luck, I mean, and the luck idea was was also. If you're but, talking about a ring world, one of the things you've really got to get right is the sheer immensity of yeah. the thing. And and they, because they reckon that their their hover bikes have travelled much much faster than like a man in a cart mm-hmm. or, or even word of mouth, they can prob they can just ignore all their mistakes and just try again at the next town over when they get like uh, a couple of thousand miles away. And, the, and in a sense, the, they're right. The good thing is that. Once they've come up with those fundamental ideas, they do hang on to them and keep them going. They don't just forget mm. about them halfway through because it's inconvenient to the story. Yeah. They ha- they have to work around these ideas all the way through the rest of it, mm-hmm. um, and and they do so reasonably. In- there's some intelligent thought behind some of their decisions. Yeah. You know, the the how do we cope with Teela Brown and her luck gene? I mean, I keep on having red dwarf flashbacks at this stage, but but the way that they think about it and the way they change their opinions as time goes on and they think about it in more depth is actually quite well put together. I quite like the idea of of how they think, of, you know, how they change their minds as, as evidence builds up. So we get we get a, a large travel section here, and and the, the sort of inter into dynamics of the group get quite stretched as well mm. I mean, because they're all starting to get on each other's nerves and it also transpires that uh, that the puppeteers not only have been messing around with the human race to try and create someone super lucky they've also been messing around with the kazin to try and defang them because they considered that their race to be quite dangerous and hostile so been... this one i thought was more interesting yeah, mm-hmm. So the way they did this was right. So let me, correct me if I'm wrong. It was quite a complicated thing. So <laughs> the 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 Kazin, no, the puppeteers have got a thing called a starseed lure, which is a device which lures starseeds, which are a kind of interstellar interstellar plant, space monster, space thing, whale yes. type yeah. thing. Yeah, and and these these starseed are followed by a race of, of uh, technologically advanced creatures called outsiders and they the, the puppeteers used the starseed lure to cause the outsiders to follow a starseed into human space and then the humans made contact with the outsiders gained lots of technology uh, and used that technology to beat off and survive against the Kazin and they could have I think the the original starseed migration was going to land in a Kazin world and give them the tech instead in which case they would have subjugated and exterminated humanity so you know yeah. And this becomes and, revealed during and, the chit-chat around and the campfire. And the puppeteers were considering just wiping out the Kazin and mm. then decided, well, we'll try this instead. We'll try and we'll defang them. them. Yeah. yeah, try and make them a little By bit... By making t- them repeatedly lose wars against a technologically enhanced mankind, which yeah. they had and, done. And therefore every brave, angry Kazin yeah, ends up dead. All the fighty ones go to war and die, <laughs> leaving a much uh, weaker race like who are more those. I this explains next-generation Klingons. 
yeah, all, all, all the fighty Klingons got killed between, yeah. And, and, and Speaker to Animals learns of this, and, and that raises some tensions in the little group, as you might imagine. He's slightly miffed, should we He's say. a bit gross, yeah. But he doesn't, he's, he's being kept in psychological thrall to Nessus with a thing called, that Nessus calls the TASP, which is a, a, a device he's got so implanted in one of his heads. Which, yeah, it's, it's just idea, bam, 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 idea. This is one of the reasons I love this book. So mm-hmm. this TASP thing is a, is, a, is a device that you can point at someone and cause them to have a mo- have just a feelings of un- completely over the top pleasure. It's like almost it's like a kind of anti torture device. But of course, this 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 pleasure is is hugely psychologically addictive and quite harmful in the, in the withdrawal. And if you use it on someone enough, eventually they'll become utterly dependent on it. And if they can't get it, they'll get they'll get it. They'll sink into depression and eventual suicide. And 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 intelligent creatures are aware that this is happening to them as well. It makes the whole the whole process of torture via kindness, torture via pleasure, become quite a horrific concept, as detailed throughout the book. Nessus has got no problem using this thing on on, on speaker to animals whenever is necessary, and speaker to animals is aware it's going on, can't do anything about it, and is absolutely furious. Um, so yeah, that creates some tension, as you can imagine. Does he use it on Louis at all? I can't yes, he does much later on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, towards the end. So it works on because he has well. one in each head. Each head has one: one for Cassine and one for humanity. Yeah. Um, and he uses it on a, a character that turns up later <clears throat> who has power inherently because, mm, yes. you know, once you've got an idea, let's <laughs> run it into the ground. Um, yeah. That, mm. So we got, uh, so they all end up falling out and, you know, having, flying off separately and trying to, you know, and Louis, Louis is the sort of mediator between everyone trying to keep the expedition together as they try and find their way to some kind of rescue or safety. Uh, then we see some cool stuff on the way. I like the sunflowers. The sunflowers are like one of my <laughs> yeah. favourite bits. They, they find a bright patch in the clouds and they fly over it and the clouds like- clear and... and yeah. They're like something out of Gears of War. <laughs> That's why they appealed to me on a bonkers, who what the hell kind of level. And yeah, they did feel like some some kind of hostile environment hazard from a video game. Yeah, but basically they they are they're, they're basically sunflowers. That instead of a, a flower, they've got a par- par- parabolic mirror. And they just turn. They always they turn to anything they sense and focus the sun's beams on them. No one and knows why. I know it's insane. How did this come about? But I just loved how, well, how exotic and bizarre they were. They're exactly like things in Hyperion, aren't they? The, mm. Exactly the same. Yeah, that feel, yeah, yeah. So basically, they come across a massive field of these, and and they and uh, speaker to animals happened to be on their lead bike when they flew out of the clouds, and he gets absolutely hosed by them, set on fires, you know, the uh, fur burnt off and stuff. And that was he survives because it was slightly hazy. He manages to get back out, and so they wait for a shadow square to come across and, and go down and have a look. And, and yeah, just acres and acres of these like essentially living laser beams on this uh, this thing, and they speculate as to how they got there. Why would anyone in their right mind plant them? They probably they were probably in a zoo and escaped. That sort of thing. I like yeah. that the idea that something incredibly insane and stupid that mm. would have been taken care of yeah, just yeah. got out because there's oh. no one here anymore. Another yeah, another sign that just whatever high oh. civilization was running this place yeah. is long gone and fallen. And they also started at this point. Uh, Nessa started think, well, that, that luck thing's obviously not true because look what happened to speaker to animals therefore yes. the luck thing can't be true yeah and, and they well, start and, i mean but, yeah, and the luck I like thing is preposterous that, but yeah, yeah they're the sort of debate debating backwards and forwards and can't decide if it is working or isn't working as bad and good things but, happen but i them. love the way that louis just sort of doesn't necessarily agree with him because he's thinking actually why would luck help 
someone he's she's a companion with yeah why, why would why would her luck help you yes yeah exactly <laughs> and that's the sort of thing that Nessus has largely overlooked throughout his massive you know, because, generational and this program. also makes sense because he's a herd animal mm. so he thinks of the herd not of individuals yes therefore he thinks well i'm in a herd with her therefore her luck will protect me or protect it me makes, as well that blind spot makes sense can, it's internally consistent. Mm. The sort of the the alien race he, that they've developed. Yeah, yeah. The characters are pretty well thought out and surprisingly deep. Consider that considering in anything well, any other book they might be sort of just throw away. And this this thing has two heads. And the male cowardly. Uh, well, quite. Yeah. I mean, Tila. Tila's. I mean, she she gets a bit of personality and development and so on. She's got nothing. She exists to be young and naive a... to start with. Then she gets a bit uh, more experienced and is at no point. In fact, it explicitly says she has no free will. She just <clears throat> exists and is at the utter mercy of this force. Well, also, yeah, but also Louis sort of constantly aware of the fact that she'd never been hurt because she's always so lucky. So you know, he's 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 having to sort of let her make mistakes and let her fall out of the spaceship, that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. you know she's having she he thinks she's needs a crash course in just self preservation because of the way her luck has has sort of sheltered her all her life so far. She's yeah, and she yeah, may not she's have an interesting personality, but given the fundamental idea of who she is yeah what she the character that they've developed they've designed for her or written for her makes sense it is consistent or you yes. look at her of one of the two extremes of the fantasy about women <laughs> which uh happens in this novel which we'll get to when we get on to the other female character mm-hmm. okay so so they're carrying on on the journey they come across a massive eye floating in the sky which freaks everyone out and that turns out to be a kind of static rolling storm due to due to lateral coriolis effect i don't know enough about whether a Meteorologies, no, that's at all, at all realistic at all, but it's an interesting idea again. So, you know, you know, and they worked out. I think that that storm is caused because the 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 basic uh, the fabric of the base of the ring itself has got a small puncture there from a from a meteorite hitting it from mm-hmm. the outside, which is caused causing the air to slowly leak out. Now, of course, there's huge. I mean, you know, let alone where does the material for the ring come from? Is how do you find that much air to fill it with? Um, but <laughs> it's slowly well, leaking they, away. They've obviously i think they even said in the book mm. they obviously have alchemy they can turn one element matter into another transmutation, matter yeah. transmutation so they can create the atmosphere make everything they need yeah, yeah. so eventually they find they find they come across a floating fortress some sort of giant citadel thing floating in the sky and this is unusual because they've come across evidence of other ones of these that crash to the ground before yeah, taken off. This one still had power. Yeah. This one seemed to be powered. So they they'd land there and have a look around. They managed to find a map of the uh, of the uh, the ring itself in there, and also evidence of, of a kind of uh, master race who are no longer around, who who they were initially mistaken for. Because I think Louis bald by choice. He was just mm-hmm. yeah, shaved his head, and that the the ring world engineers were all bald as well. So the the sort of natives who presumably are some other indigenous population brought there earlier uh we're all thinking he was one of the one of the builders so. yeah, as it turned out the builders of the ring world look pretty much identical to humans mm, yeah. they are there and yeah and uh if you read the the following books or the previous books it turns mm. out they are effectively humans are an offshoot of the same species that uh, created the ring world i sort of suspected something like that yeah too convenient otherwise mm-hmm. um yeah so so they they carry on i think they they managed 
while they're spending the night in the floating fortress, they, they find out in the morning that something weird's landing on the, uh, some sort of weird black wispy stuff's landing on the uh, the citadel. It turns out to be the wire from, from when they crashed into the ship. Nobody seems as concerned about this as they should be at this point, considering it could mild, have sliced the building mono, in half mono. at any moment. <laughs> It is ridiculously sharp, yes. It is literally monomolecular filament. Um, but, yeah, no one seems to be that bothered with it. Um, so then they, they go down to the village and try and do the, the god act again. And I, I think it goes better this time because they I think they they hit on the idea of using speaker to animals to be the, uh, the fearsome war god. No, they couldn't because the speaker to animals had burnt all his hair off so he looked like a bald pussycat. Oh. So he he's, he's rubbish at being a god at this stage. It was just... Uh, Lewis oh, is that where Lestus loses his head? Yes. No, no, that's, that's later, later on. No, that's oh. much, much later. God, uh, have you nowhere near there yet? I have read it. But, well, yeah, these different different towns they visit seem to sort of blur into each other a bit for me. That's because yes. they're identical. <laughs> yeah. They're equally, equally uninteresting. All mm. the places they go to are equally uninteresting. Oh, that's right. Sadly. They storm afterwards and they lose Teela at that point. Yes, and then right. everything changes. Yes, because she flies too close to the, the, the big hurricane vortex thing, gets shot out of the bottom at super speed and vanishes. Accidentally passes out and knocks a button and... Yeah. Turbo, but no one, none of the rest of them knew about that, that Nessus hadn't told them was there, yeah. Um, so then there's down just three of them left. And they carry on exploring, and I think the best bit about there only being three of them left is mm. the bad sex scenes dry up for a bit. <laughs> there had been there had been lots of goings on between Louis and Teela all the way through. Yeah, although they were fairly sort of they got together and then carefully the writing stopped, so you didn't actually get the the painful details. It was really tasteful. Just, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was written for 15-year-olds, I think, rather than genuinely written for 15-year-olds, <laughs> as opposed to only 15-year-olds would read this. Mm. It was still, though, I mean, God, bad, si- bad sex scenes are... And these are, the, these are the least bad sex scenes we've had in any of the books we've read so far. <laughs> but even so, yeah. they're not good. Mm, well, quite. Uh, so what happens there? They, they go looking for Teela. They, they find the signal from her bike. They follow that to a little bit. Then, the, yeah, no. Then she go, disappears, and then they decide she's dead, and then they go travelling, and then they. That's then they find that they get caught in the police station. Then the, then the police station yes. captures them. Yes, which it's is just, quite a clever idea, but it's a clever idea for a paragraph, not for five <laughs> chapters. So basically, the bikes the bikes are taken over by an unknown force, which just completely <laughs> subverts and, and programs them to go off in a direction they can't stop it. And you're thinking, oh my god, this is something huge and sinister, and it turns out to be just some sort of local traffic regulation system that had been left running when they're stuck on the police station it mm. did feel like if you've seen the walking dead the time they were on the farm i don't know it, it went on far too long and nothing happened it was there was a really lengthy <laughs> bit where they're in the sort of impound and they're stuck on their bikes with the airbags and stuff and slowly dehydrating to death while nessus manages to escape and find the person who's been running this police station and that yeah that went on for quite a while too long I yeah think. So it turns out that uh, the, the police station is being run by one of the actual Ringworld engineers' survivors who's, who's sort of fetched up at this place. And, and, there's... and 81% of the way through the novel, we finally get a stupid name. <laughs> um, yes, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. Oh, God, I'll give it a go. Harlow Prillala 
Hotorufan, um, which gets shortened to Prill, um, thankfully. And I do like uh, John's description of replacement, replacement sex, lady. sex lady. Yeah, that yeah. sums up her character perfectly. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's she's initially silent and hostile, and just waiting for them to die and watching them. But then Nessus uses his sinister pleasure implant thing to uh, totally, totally th- enthrall her, which she she isn't too happy about. But starts. Well, but to she come also around. has innate ability to do this herself. Well, it turns because she understands sex better than anyone yes, else. Yes, yes, it. She's mm. so. She, it turns out she's so good at sex. She can do this to men anyway. You know, uh, which, which is beyond, where the you know, very comes good nookie. It's, it becomes mind control yeah. nookie, which is yeah. Because you've got Teela, who is the mm. innocent, the young yeah. innocent, and then you've got Prill, who's a really experienced woman who knows yeah, she's really And these are teeny bit stereotypical and that is their entire characters yeah her, her actual job was ship's prostitute um so it turns out that she was part of a crew of ringworld engineer people who were out on a long long haul expedition because the ringworld engineers were clever enough to build massive star encircling ringworlds but not clever enough to work out hyperspace so all their spaceships travel uh-huh. slower than yes. with, with yeah. rams i liked the comment there about uh, our, our uh, physics said that this is impossible hmm. <laughs> Well, this also explains why you'd go to the to the, the bonkers trouble because, of building a ring world instead of just going to another star system and using yeah, another planet. Because they did mention early on, in the, this is part of Larry Niven's known space. Mm. And in those, you can only get hyperspace when you're a certain distance away from a gravity well, like yes. a sun. Yeah. And they had not never tried their oh, experiments tried to do outside the gravity well uh, exactly so neither did humanity possible. humanity only discovered they'd learnt it from other faster people, than light yeah. from other people yeah, yeah the, these these uh, outsiders yeah <clears throat> so, so again there's a lot of internal consistency in yeah. the stories like, and the ideas through a lot of the, mm. the, the potential plot holes and so on and tried to sort of seal it all up in a s- relatively satisfying plot relevant uh, although way apparently after this book came out uh, a bunch of physicists went to a world con and were ranting at him that the ring world wasn't stable <laughs> because it wouldn't actually stay in orbit oh, because it's not, actually it's not it can't orbit because it's not a single thing falling towards the middle yeah because it's a solid ring going around the outside yeah. so it would always be unstable and would eventually crash into the sun uh, so he had to write a sequel to explain <laughs> how that didn't happen Ugh. did he write Details. a sequel to explain how the luck worked <laughs> uh, the luck the luck made an appearance in the sequel uh. um so anyway, they they so they managed to so yeah that's it. Prill was basically part of a crew of, of interstellar sublight traders who went away and came back to find the ring not responding and and all not working or anything like that. And yeah, basically she was a, a sort of ship's companion, as it were. Um, and most of the rest of the crew either sort of got killed trying to land on the thing or went off into different directions on the surface of the thing and disappeared. And she was just left on her own wandering around the place. Well, she um, she came to here because this is where she. Her, she was born, so she went back to where she was born, uh, which is why she ended up here, and nobody else could be bothered to travel to where she was born. So they managed to talk around partly through psychological coercion with a TASP and, and partly through just shared common interests. Psychological coercion, we're going to call it that, are we? <laughs> Mind rape, I suppose, yeah, call it what you like. Um, so they managed to managed to get her on side and get get free of the, uh, the, the, uh, the sort of the police station place. 
Uh, does Tila come back at that point, just randomly? I yes, a bit, a bit later. A bit later. When, when, when they put, they glue their remaining fly cycle yep. to the floaty castle, yep. and then chop off bits of the floaty castle and use the fly cycle to push the floaty castle. As the police station is floating, yeah, they use it as a kind and of hover then thing. Tila was flying back to them and got caught by the police station thing. And then they found her because uh, her luck brought her back. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure why the luck needed to bring her back at that point. Well, she'd found someone else at that oh, point. Because, this seeker chap. because Seeker wouldn't sleep with her unless they came back and oh, yeah, she he, was given she away. She had to be sold, didn't she? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes it was all a bit peculiar. <laughs> so, yeah, there's this native chap called Seeker who's some wandering swordsman hero type who's, who's now become her companion and she's come back to uh, get Louis' blessing or whatever. Um, so they come up with a plan now. Yeah, I forgot to mention when they when they when they crashed the the, the spaceship on the Ring World in the, in the beginning. There was the, they crashed it near a very large mountain, which is sort of huge mountain and massively out of place. And Louis manages to get, finally, you know, sort of several thousand miles later, work out what that was all about. It didn't appear on the map in the castle. So it turns out that the mountain is actually a massive punch through from an incoming asteroid or meteor or whatever. And at the top of the mountain is essentially a, a, a hollow opening to space, which is above the atmosphere of the Ring World. So he hits on the plan of using very clever, very carefully picking up some of this monomolecular thread stuff that was holding the shadow squares together. How did they cut that in the end? I can't remember. They didn't. They didn't. Oh, they they just had they one, end, one end was attached to the end of the blo- the black oh, blackout yeah. block. Yeah. And then they just threaded the sh- that through the hull, which the hull was strong enough not to break. Not to be cut by And it, then, yeah. yeah. So, so basically, they take the, the, the monomolecular filament back to this crashed spaceship after you know, all their adventures, tie it to the spaceship, throw the police station out through the hole in the top of the mountain, using the flybike thing, get in the spaceship, and off they go, out into space. Tila and Seeker decide to stay behind. And it transpires through reasons and, and weird luck psychology that it, the whole expedition only happened because this is where Tila needed to be. Mm. Uh, for her safety, presumably the ring itself was it will will protect her from the blast wave there, of the Korg explosion. But also, there is a uh, spice variant there that allows people to live far longer than what's available on in human civilization. Also, Louis so she could the- live forever. Louis reckons the ring world is, in fact, you know, an ideal learning ground for her as well. So all, all mm. these different reasons come together. What, to what happened whole was thing. the last ten percent they just quickly <laughs> kept writing faster yeah. and faster to make the thing end. That was all very rushed. It, yeah, it was very rushed. As soon as Teela left the group, the whole thing collapsed. It's like the it's story just, didn't need to exist. It was anymore. a bit like Tila playing Jenga. To... It was playing Jenga and. They got to eighty percent through the book, and then the tiles all fell. It's like, yeah, it's like it's like the story itself only existed to facilitate Teela's luck. It's like what? This is all a bit meta. Well, yeah. in the in the prequel and the sequel, mm. it turns out mm. that humanity's. Do you want? Do you want to know this? I, I'll yeah, fill in some. De- okay. Well, I, mean, I was going to say. I've written in one of my notes there is that I found the whole thing quite self-contained and just had no real desire at all to go and look for a mm-hmm. sequel or prequel. So, oh, well, yeah. see, I was reading it and, th- and I was waiting for bits that were happening in a sequel that I'd read it previously. Uh, so it was a bit confusing. <laughs> um, so, Teela Brown's luck mm. decided that it needed her to turn into the alien that humanity was supposed to turn into when they got old. 
the pack protector who essentially was uh, written as an idea by someone who was getting arthritis and wanted a science fiction explanation for why arthritis was a good thing <laughs> so your joints swell up and you become stronger and the, the skin turns leathery and you become stage, stronger right. your teeth fall out and you get a beak which is so they turn into this super powerful warrior creature right. that protects the breeding humans right and they need a particular and plant to turn in for for a senile crippled rheumatic human to turn into this creature right. but that that plant didn't survive on earth so humans just evolved into humans and i see kind of the plant is exi- exists on the ring world and this plant is what they use to create the booster spice variant there Okay, I'm thinking. I'm not sure it, if that makes more or less it sense. It doesn't than what make we any more sense the second time. <laughs> so, explained so it to me this tonight. way, so this way, <laughs> she would then become a fully formed protector creature with right. eternal life and more strength and more intelligence and more everything. That's a long way around, isn't it? Why not it's just a, robots? Well, yeah. because um, the genes wouldn't work to create robots for her. They only work for her genetics to get better i see and in the sequel louis has become a wirehead who basically has a digital implant in the back of his head that pulses on his pleasure um sort of center of the brain Mm. because he'd been hit with the tasp so he becomes an addict to that kind of thing oh wow so in the sequel that's quite dark yeah that that has happened i assumed he got got off relatively from that at the end he he actually ends up being addicted to that kind of thing i mean yeah that's one of the few likable characters in the book i was quite hoping he'd so basically yeah the end of this book ends with them basically just you get throwing throwing the remaining spaceship out through the uh, hole in the ring world which will coast to far enough away so they can use the hyperdrive and get home and prill goes with them and tila stays stays on the ring world mm-hmm. uh and yeah stop this yeah. the end some really great ideas they really held together well some interesting characters great aliens mm. written better than any aliens we've met in previous science fiction books yes. on this in the ones we've done so far uh but they get three quarters of the way through the story and then they go on a speed run to get to the end it's like a, oh is, is, is that the time i better finish up <laughs> that kind of yeah yeah, the, oh, yeah. The, the ending of it, deadline the ending of it does feel like like very rushed and also quite sort of collapsing card house in, in on itself sort of yeah. thing you know it's all like yeah. oh quick that, 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 that. <laughs> explain that one and that one and that one and it all sort of comes at the end thinking ah da-da! you know and you're thinking oh, i could have done with another 150 pages really you know take your time <laughs> to explore some of this stuff but i mean i do like door stoppers anyway what did you reckon john overall i thought that it, it it's a book of promise it mm. promises so much and there's some fantastic ideas in it and they if it just stopped taking some of those ideas and explored them, it could have done so much better with the luck thing. It could have done so much better with the using war to breed a race to be less aggressive thing. Mm-hmm. There were so many brilliant ideas here that just sort of lots of glimpses lost yeah. over. Like, oh, I've got all these ideas. This is my book. I'm going to write it. Instead of, these are my ideas. Maybe I'm going to write 10 books. Yeah, well, I mean, he did in the end. But I, yeah, but how old was he when he wrote this? Because uh, uh, that probably makes a difference to to why it ended up. The way it did. This was written in nineteen seventy. 
Uh, and Larry Niven was born in 1938, 38. so 40, 32. Yeah. Yeah. So he was sort of becoming a successful author, but he wasn't really... Uh, yeah, he, he wasn't a big, successful... I can, af- I can afford to r- plan for 10 books in advance at this stage. Yeah, but even if he didn't plan for 10 books, it would have been a better book if he just kept some ideas back and not used every single one at once. It's sort of a scattergun approach. But, I mean, everything he uses does get explained relatively well, but then it's, it's perhaps crowded because of it. I mean, I, I love so, sort of vast yeah. array of interesting ideas I, and I concepts. I hate to say it, because I do like shorter books, but you're mm. probably right. This could have done with being a bit longer. Mm. Because the, the biggest failing for me is... They just rush everything that at last, the end. That last, yeah. yeah, the last sort of quarter of it is just... Poof. And you had quite, quite a lengthy and sort of interesting, good look, good long look, especially the first quarter. I mean, just the whole business on Earth and on the puppeteer as well, mm-hmm. before you can get to the ring world. So much interesting backstory and exploration of the people and places and concepts going on, even before you find yeah. the big MacGuffin, I mean, you know, the massive really megastructures. I really like the fact that when these characters had arguments and disagreements about what to do next... Mm. All of their arguments made sense. There wasn't a obvious right answer and a lot of idiots. Yeah, yeah. No, but none of the main characters, the sort of the three main characters, mm. the two aliens and Louis, yeah. none of them were being willfully stupid at any point. They you just didn't feel had, they were there to make had up an the entirely either, no, yeah. exactly. They just had an entirely different worldview. Mm. Um, and I loved the way that Louis's opinion on the luck changed from what a stupid idea to, oh God, I need to get away from this because it's too <laughs> scary and it's going to ruin the universe. It is an interesting sort of examination of free will and predeterminism, isn't it? Like, I mean, yeah, Louis, by the end, Louis is utterly convinced that there's just nothing they can do in the face of Teela's luck. It will do whatever it wants and all we can do is hope what to survive it. What I want is the story set thousands of years later where the luck has been bred into the entire species because everyone's lucky enough to get the luck well, that's a different book that's a different book a different story mm. so you can do both you can have that yeah, as well as it'd this. be the ideal sequel i don't usually want a sequel but i want that <laughs> i want to know what happens to humanity in that case that it's been put on a path which cannot end well well, the first time any two human beings' mega powerful luck conflict, God knows what would happen then. They can't both win. No, they can because they will both have a good outcome. Mm. Yeah, the, you can the just twist will the world. be good. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I'm so. I, what do you reckon, Tarek? Overall, then, I really enjoyed this book. Every time I've read it, I've enjoyed it less this time because I'm doing it for the podcast. <laughs> But even so, yeah. there's so much more to enjoy in this than to dislike. It sort of suggests it's, it doesn't bear hugely critical analysis yes, I mean, the, if you roll with it. It's, it's a lot true, of fun. It's yeah. true with anything. If you analyse yeah. anything, you can analyse it to death. But apart from the fact that it was rushed at the end, mm. it has so many good things about it. The the the. I know you like world building. I do. This is brilliant world building. It is, yeah. The ideas behind it are superb. And, and I, love, I love a good big effort. stupid object too. Yeah. Like this is one of the sort of archetypal ones, the ring world, you know. I mean, it's the, the essentially the Dyson Sphere. I mean, I was, I was They just, actually mentioned Dyson Sphere at the beginning. They actually he gave him credit. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I think actually gave credit. Freeman Dyson came up with the Dyson Sphere concept in the 60s, I think. I don't mm-hmm. think that was even... I was reading a bit about that today, and it wasn't actually meant to be a solid sphere. His original concept was a swarm. Essentially, uh-huh. just a, a spherical 
metallical swarm of objects. That's because if you have the a sphere, then the um, solar wind would just blow it to bits. Well, yeah. But also, unless you had vents, in which case you had rockets. <laughs> but also, if you have a swarm, each one can be in orbit around the sun. Yes. Exactly. Whereas you if you have, have a sphere, from. it can't be in orbit around the sun because the sun's just stuck in the middle of it. So the whole thing falls apart phys mm. in physics. So... Freeman Dyson actually was was a lot cleverer about oh, yeah, building yeah. these things than than this. He saw the obvious because, with the yeah, initial concept because yeah. Larry Niven isn't the physicist that Freeman Dyson is. I think this is one of the first well-known novels that takes the the massive stupid space mega structure and really goes to town on it. And you see that influence all throughout, you know, subsequent yeah, sci-fi space opera yeah, stuff. And at least in this, they don't come up with artificial gravity, which is hand-waving yeah. magic of the highest order. Oh, at least in this, the gravity makes the gravity makes no, sense. No, the ship has artificial gravity. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> well they do Ruined. have artificial gravity. John but, wins. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I I I bow down. You're right. They yeah. do have it as well, but well, the, I love the, it. The ring world doesn't, and it still works. <laughs> I love this book just because it's sheer unrelenting inventiveness, again and again, just yeah. crazy things, and and a lot of them are just astonishing ideas that appear for a paragraph and then disappear again if it has a downside it is yes it rushes the end and and perhaps doesn't explore some of the some of the cool things it comes up with quite so often it could really have done with being a trilogy mm. and you won't hear me say that very often <laughs> jesus no that's that's that i can't believe you said that right so next time where we're going to be looking it's john's pick next time we're looking at the big time by fritz lieber this is 1958 we're going way back near the start of it all again so this would be interesting i, I don't think any of us have actually read it no but it's one of the classic time travel novels so i thought it'd be a good idea okay well we'll be, we'll be looking at that next time then so uh with that we'll see you next time goodbye cheerio